Good afternoon, everybody. I cannot believe it is June already. Welcome to the 24th official Fireside Chat. A great number of people in the room. Great uh, questions again today. We're going to start with TJ. Uh, TJ, you ready to go? Fire away. Sure. Um, so first question I've got here is with the advent of human-created technologies, such as augmented reality and immersive virtual reality, we now seem to have the perfect analogy with which to explain how consciousness sort of descends into the physical world from one octave up. And this physical dimension is to the virtual reality as the LCS is to our physical dimension. So we can immerse ourselves into a human-created virtual reality dimension by sort of by snuffing out all of the physical sensory data from Earth and then broadcasting an alternate stronger signal in its place. So can you explain a little bit more of the as above, so below, like fractality of how this human consciousness plays out? Okay, I'm not sure I've got your question, but uh, let me uh, work at it. And if it doesn't work for you, just come back with, uh, with, with another one. Um, you're right. Uh, the electronics and virtual reality technology has gotten better and better and better. Uh, I'm particularly impressed with the latest uh, called, um, I think it's called No Man's Sky, which is a procedurally um, generated simulation that works very much the same way that the larger conscious system works in creating this simulation. And one would expect that. I mean, that's what happens in a fractal, right? We begin to repeat the same patterns that, uh, you know, that we're, that we're made of, but this, this particular um, virtual reality, uh, though it was produced by a handful of people, uh, you know, four, four or less, on small amounts of computer, you know, they didn't have a supercomputer, you know, they were working from their laptops sort of thing. Um, it has in it, uh, I don't know, quadrillion numbers of, planets you know it is a universe about the size of ours and everything is generated on the fly so the data goes out to the user only when the user looks just like you know it does here with us and as time goes by you go away from a from a planet you come back things will have changed you know evolution takes place in your absence it's a it's a really neat uh, process and what makes it so neat is that they have created so much out of so little. See, that's the, that's the, uh, the value of this procedural generation. Everything is computed on the fly. Everything is made up of kind of prototypes, if you will, and then random numbers will add specifics to those prototypes. So you can get trillions and trillions of different sorts of things, creatures and and you know, plants and everything else, every planet will be different. Um, and you do that with just a little bit of physics, a little bit of biology, and, uh, all, you know, random number generators. So it works very much the way our reality does in, a, in the sense that it, it will show people this idea that, that uh, reality is generated one data link, you know, at a time for the individual who that data link goes to and that it can be immense without immense computer power. 
backing it up if it's done cleverly. So I think that um, that's just there's no man's sky. Of course, procedural generation has been around for about five or six years. Uh, it's been a major thing, I guess, for that long. It was probably a minor thing before that. And now we have this big simulation. And my guess, this is just the, the beginning. So in another decade from now, we will have worked out the, the details and improved and then improved again and improved again this, this line of, uh, of creating virtual realities. And they'll get more and more lifelike, more and more real to where it won't be that long, maybe a decade before that reality is going to become just about as detailed and as uh, much variation and diversity as our reality. Then perhaps it'll pass our reality. Perhaps we will have a, a universe that's virtual that's 10 times bigger than our actual physical universe. So it will then maybe surpass our reality. And at that point, I think people will have no trouble at all getting the idea that this virtual, you know, how this virtual reality works and how reality is created by a data stream and how all of this reality in this entire universe really doesn't take that much computer power. You know, it's, it's doable. It's not like you need the infinite computer to create this infinite universe. You know, it's not like that. So it'll make, it'll give this concept of virtual reality a sense of reality because people will be playing these games. People will be interacting in these universes and it will become a simple, a simple uh, matter then for them to understand the my big toe theory. You know, that's the hard part. The hard part for people is that they get this idea about you know, nothing physical really exists. It's just a data stream. Turn your head and you no longer have that data stream. You know, and it doesn't mean that those things cease to exist. It just means you're not getting that data in that data stream. You know, it's not part of your reality. And um, anyway, so I think that the increase in electronics, where you started your question, is indeed going to make these concepts of MBT easier and easier to understand. So that just a decade from now, when people read what now is this very confusing, hard to get your mind around concept of virtual reality, it'll be as simple as, you know, as, as almost anything else. It's not going to be hard to get your mind around it. It's going to be trivial to get your mind around it because you've been doing similar things, you know, in a half a dozen different different games for different reasons. And we've only begun to scratch that, that possibility yet. This is kind of the first one of a new generation of simulations and, and virtual realities that we're going to see that will make this concept of virtual reality seem second nature. So I'm very hopeful that uh, within a decade, it won't be, that just doesn't make sense. I just can't get my head wrapped around, you know, this concept. I can't, it just doesn't compute for me. I think that will be a thing of the past, and uh, I'm looking forward to that day, and I don't think it's that far off. I think we've really gotten our foot through the door now. So I don't know if that answered your question, but uh, yes, I think modern technology is indeed informing um, people about the nature of the larger reality, and those two are going to help each other a lot. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Tom. 
You know, Tom, it is actually um, really encouraging to see that uh, so many people right now are actually talking about the possibility that we may be living in a virtual reality. I see Elon Musk earlier this week, even he got in on the act at the uh, the Code Conference saying that we may be living in the Matrix for real. So uh, it's getting there. And one of the things that helped him come to that conclusion was this No Man's Sky. The folks, right. that, the folks that did that, that are the creators of that computer, Oh, some months ago, I don't know how long, but uh, some months ago, uh, had a, a nice long talk with Elon Musk and explained to them what uh, what they were doing and how it worked and so on. And it was some month after that that he came out with his statement about, you know, <laughs> it looks like we're living in a virtual reality. Although he ta- attached his logic to that, not to No Man's Sky, but to... Um, um, oh, the Englishman, what is he? Not Bashama, but... Um, Bostrom? Bostrom, yeah. Nick, yeah. yeah. Nick Bostrom. That, that sort of logic. Um, but anyway, yes, I agree with you, Keith. Almost every day you hear somebody else claiming that it uh, looks like this is a virtual reality. You know, people with, with large audiences like, like Musk. But remember, folks, you heard it here first, right? <laughs> <laughs> We got we got a proof. Um, listen, it's 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 great to see Ron in the room joining us today on the Fireside Chat for the first time. Ron, are you ready to uh, ask your question? Yes, most it. definitely. Hey, Tom. Hey, Ron. How are you? Good. So um, I've come across this gentleman by the name of Howard Wills um, a couple of years ago, and been paying a little more attention to him. He is I want to call him a faith healer, but when I was at the Moreau Institute a couple of years ago, one of the facilitators there told me about him and some of the things that he's done to help people um, through healing. Uh, you know, mend bones, cure the blind, Jesus-type miracles. So I'm not so much interested in asking a question about that. Um, he uses a tool set of praying, of praying, I should say, to affect uh, the probable outcome. For me, um, on a practical level, and maybe for other people, I've been using the prayers to kind of fill in the gaps of the day, of the time where my mind starts to wander to other things. Um, You know, a lot of times people are picking this thing up and using this all the time, checking Facebook statuses, and there's a lot of noise and monkey mind going on. So what I've tried to do on a more, like I said, practical level is use the prayers as a background kind of like recording intentionally going on. Um, and one of them is, um, you know, like a short verse is uh, to all people, I forgive me, please forgive me, let's all forgive each other, please and thank you. So that's like one short stand of it. But I try to have that going on, on a, whenever I can on a daily basis. And I know <clears throat> that it's acting like you're becoming love instead of being love. It's, you know, it's, but I'm, my question is, uh, would this be something that you find to be advisable or uh, useful for others? Yes, uh, definitely. You know, prayer is just another word for meditation, which is just another word for focused intent. You know, it's uh, all part of the same thing. So to have your intent focused on something positive, on something that is um, um, pushing you in the right direction, is a good thing. It, you might even call that self-programming, if you will. And though it is an intellectual effort to do it, that 
programming does tend to seep in over time if you keep that up. So I think that is a positive thing to do. Uh, now, you could, you know, it's possible that if you really didn't want to go there, you know, where you're trying, you know, where you're trying to move yourself, if there was a part of you that uh, really didn't want to go there, then it could ignore that programming. But given that you really do want to go there, you do want to grow the quality of your consciousness, and this is what you're programming yourself to do, then I think that it, it will work. It will seep into the being level over time. At least it will help you. It'll make that, that transition seem more natural to you. So, yes, I think it's probably a good idea and uh, something that you can do. You know, when you, when you do healing yourself, one of the techniques to be more effective is to keep your intent to heal that individual or that particular problem in that individual in your mind all the time in the background. So that intent is putting energy into you know that particular outcome of reality that you are uh, that you have there in that in that prayer in that intent and that will help manifest that intent into this into this reality so yes good thing to do eventually you can learn to keep maybe two or three of those programs running all at the same time you can you can uh, do more than more than one at a time i've been toying with that a little bit as well the other thing I wanted to ask you, um, I didn't write it down as a question, but he talks about, um, going back to Howard Wells, he talks about how cleaning the lineage, the, I guess you can call it bad karma on your lineage and your ancestors, is something that would uh, could be beneficial to helping, you know, I guess somebody evolve or, or just live a better, healthier, happier life. Um, my understanding of MBT and, and all that is, it, you know, it's just another tool set, but is there anything to that yeah there's something to all sorts of tools now is that literally is that literally what's going on you know right. that you are cleaning away the bad deeds of lineage i would say not likely that's not really what's going on but it's a decent metaphor you're working on uh, you know negative things on learning lessons and so on and if that helps you focus your intent on doing that because you put it in the form of cleaning uh, old crud, then, you know, that's probably a good tool. I can see one advantage in the tool is it doesn't trap your ego because it's not your crud you're cleaning. It's somebody else's. It's that old stuff that you didn't have anything to do with, you see. So <laughs> right away, it gives your ego a buy, and you're not, you know, you're not kind of uh, running afoul of, of your own ego by putting it in that context. So there's a you know, there's an advantage. It's like a way to sidestep the ego so the ego doesn't get into it and ruin the experience. You've kind of sidestepped that by putting it uh, beyond the ego. It's somebody else's ego uh, in the past. So tools are good, are good and tools work. If you, you know, you know, if they work for you, then they're good tools. So sure, that sort of thing can work, but is it literally What's going on that you're being hampered by, you know, past decisions and so on? Not really. Not in that way. Now, where, the way you're hampered by past decisions is that if you had fear in a past life and you haven't gotten over it yet, well, you're still dealing with it, you see. So in that sense, yes, okay, you had a, you had a, a lifetime where you de-evolved some. You uh, 
didn't go forward, you maybe got backward. And now you got to deal with that. So in a way, you can, you can say that, yes, that's kind of dealing with uh, transgressions of the past, but not so much. Those are really things in the present. You know, that's just the way you are. You're the sum of all of those experiences. Some of those experiences are two step forward and some of them are one step backward. And you have to deal with the, with the sum of all of those. But going back and trying to fix something in the past uh, is a metaphor that enables you to focus on doing something now. All the action that happens, all the change that happens is in the present with your intent now. That's where the action is. You're not really changing the past. You are focusing your intent to change something in the present. Thank you. Does that answer your question clearly enough, Juan? Yes, sir. Cool. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Tom, the next one I've got, I'm going to read out from MBT Forum user CH79. Uh, I think it's a great question. I'm going to read it out in its entirety. Um, It says, hi again, Tom. I first found and read your book two years ago. I'm now 300 pages into my second read of it, and it's surprisingly easy to read and understand this time, and I take that as a sign of growth, and I think I can thank MBT for most of that. For the last year, I've been very focused on exploring reality and my own life, and without noticing it much, I've been disconnecting myself from many things close to me, including my family. To make a short story even shorter, I messed up. I finally gave up and hit rock bottom but was saved by my parents, remembered my connection with them, and learned a huge lesson about the very strong love that connects us all. Now it's all sweet and good again, for me, of course, though. But I'm concerned about others. Because of how evolved the LCS is, I want to think that all things are always good in the end for everyone in its system. But I also see unrecoverable tragedy and errors and people who stray so far away from love that it hurts to see. Are these things really unavoidable? Um, Are they unavoidable? No. Matter of fact, that's why we're here is to learn how to avoid them. They're uh, They're not unavoidable. But most of us get caught in these kinds of traps from time to time, just as uh, this fellow got caught in a trap of not paying attention to his day-to-day, you know, interactions, responsibilities, and connections, and uh, becoming unbalanced, spending all of his time, you know, thinking of, uh, you know, more abstractions and his growth and so on. Then it became all about him. He was neglecting things that were important to his to his growth. So uh, we get pulled into those and other kinds of things from time to time. But our point here is to realize it, overcome it, and go the other way. So all of them are avoidable, although none of us will avoid them all. You know, we've all been to places that uh, weren't, weren't comfortable and then realized later that it was mostly our ego and our fear that was the problem. So that's just part of growing up. And yes, some people get so far away from where they need to be. They get so far kind of down in that hole of, of fear that it's very difficult for them to go the other way. Well, that's why we recycle. If we didn't recycle, then you kind of get stuck. You'd, you'd paint yourself in a corner. It'd be really hard to get out. But uh, that doesn't happen. Eventually, uh, the, the avatar dies and... You get to start all over again. Uh, after all, you've got a lot of other um, experience packets that are contributing to you, and hopefully uh, a lot of those others will still kind of hold you up at a, 
at a, at a better place, even if you have a, a, a kind of a disaster of, a, of a, 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 an experience packet every now and again. So it's not like you reset everything to zero. It's just part of the process of learning and growing, and you learn from your mistakes. Okay. Um, following on from that, Tom, you're talking about the avatars. Um, I think you're going to guess which question I'm going to come on to next, and that's the, uh, the question about dinosaurs as avatars. Um, you know, this person on the forum says that, uh, you know, our PMR is more specifically our Earth, is a virtual Earth that's evolved along with everything now living on it, all the critters, animals and fishes, etc. So why did dinosaurs exist and why for so long? Were they really excellent avatars for consciousness to learn in? It seems if they were around for 250 million years and were not very good avatars to learn in, that would be somewhat of a waste of time, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes, but it was a natural waste of time. So uh, you know, don't think of the uh, of the uh, larger consciousness system as you know an old man in a long white beard playing with these pet people, and now he's bored because those dinosaurs aren't good avatars, and they've taken up a lot of time. You know, it doesn't work like that. It's not a it's not a, an old man playing with these pet people. It's that was the natural outcome of evolution according to the rule set, and those. <laughs> Big lizards, you know, weren't very good avatars because they didn't make a lot of interesting, challenging, you know, ethical choices. They were very driven by their instincts and their physical needs, and there wasn't a whole lot more to it than that, you know. So the, the, the choices that they had were very limited. So they didn't make good avatars. Right. And, you might even think, and I don't know that this is a fact, but you might, uh, we might uh, take, a, take a wild guess and say that perhaps those dinosaurs met with, a, with an end all at the same time because, of course, we, we think that, uh, you know, asteroid hit or volcanoes erupted or whatever, and it cut off the sunlight, which cut off the plants, which cut off, you know, most every other form of life and basically the dinosaurs just couldn't exist anymore there was a you know that their demise was a geological you know it was a result of a geological happening uh, by that i mean you know asteroid earthquakes volcanoes whatever change in the earth and uh, perhaps now the system did plan that move because otherwise it was stuck there wasn't anything able to evolve past those dinosaurs because they ate everything, you know, for the, for the, uh, you know, the monkeys and then the humanoids and so on. To evolve in that situation was very difficult because <coughs> dinosaurs ate everything. So it could be that you needed to get rid of the dinosaurs before the other uh, critters could evolve to the point that they did make good avatars. And it could be that the system created the, the, the event that wiped the dinosaurs out. So well, well, Tom, that, Tom may, why would the... It may have just been natural. It may have just happened that way. The system may have just been completely patient and waited for something like that to happen because these big events in geology do happen from time to time, and uh, it could have been entirely natural, but... It might not have been, and we don't know, and there's probably no way to know. Okay. 
Well, if 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 the system works, you know, in that way, why would it just not start the run run the the, the start button, say, two hundred thousand years ago, and and avoid all the early stuff and and the stuff that leads to it? Why would it not just start at a later point? Because with evolution, you can't start in the middle. You know, everything is built on what happened before. You start with things that are very, very simple, you know, the little one-celled things, and then they evolve. And you just have to let that go so that you get a natural progression according to the rule set. It's hard to start in the middle of a process like that. If you do, then you've got something that doesn't really belong there. It's not really something that's grown up out of the rule set. It's a, it's a thing without, without history. Because it, it doesn't, uh, you know, it's not a natural part of a causal rule set. So in order to have our history be a continuous causal history, you got to start at the beginning and just let it evolve. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't speed up the clock. You could speed up the clock so that evolution uh, went faster and then slow the clock down when it got more interesting. You know, that's a, that's a possibility if you have... Uh, you know, people who are, are using their computers to evolve systems will often do that. They will often run the clock faster, you know, cycle through it more quickly to get past the boring part to where they get to the more interesting part and then slow the speed down. So that's a possibility. So the system has ways of dealing with, you know, having to wait around until an amoeba turns into a man, you know, that, that takes a long time. It may have uh, sped that process up, not, not really by making the process change any, kept the process natural, but just making the time base speed up. You know, that uh, is a possibility. Okay. All right, Tom. Thanks for, thanks for that one. Um, Oliver, you, you, you know, you're here all the time, and uh, I noticed that you have a question. Do you want to ask it yourself? Yep, sure. I can do that. Sure. Um, Tom, in a previous fireside chat, uh, Ted asked you a question related to non to the non-physical management team. I would find it interesting to hear a bit more about your insights regarding direct interventions within PMR by this reality management team. Have you ever learned about particular plot lines in world events that uh, this team pursues, for example, making sure certain events happen versus making sure certain other events don't happen? Uh, when does the line between monitoring and intervention gets crossed, and how would an intervention be carried out? Okay, I guess we were just talking about that. Good, good connection, Keith. Uh, that's just what we were talking about. Perhaps the dinosaurs, uh, you know, were an intervention. I mean, the, the elimination of the dinosaurs was a was a uh, intervention like that. Well, your last question first is that how does that have to take place? It has to take place in a way that there's little to no evidence around that it ever took place. So it needs to be subtle. It can't be a, a large hand just comes down and, you know, moves all the characters around. It has to be something that... Uh, um, looks natural. It looks like it just evolved that way. In other words, it has to be one of those choices in all the possible choices, all the things that could happen and, and you know, take a random draw from that distribution and that's what does happen. Well, the system can modify that probability. The system can make one of those choices come out from under the tail of the curve that's maybe a long shot, but still it's a natural choice. It's one of those things that could have happened. So it's kind of limited to the possibilities 
and and uh, in doing that, it, it looks like it's a, a natural thing. In my experience, it doesn't get heavy-handed. It doesn't just change things, just make things happen very often. It tries to not do that as much as possible, and it uses instead nudging. You know, we've talked about that before. That's where your intuition kind of gets an idea that uh, maybe you ought to do this or maybe you ought to do that, and synchronicity that helps you grow up, gives you the right sort of experience at the right time to make things come together in your mind. So those are the tools that it mostly uses. It encourages people through the nudging, the synchronicity, um, the intuition, but it lets them make the final choice. You can always ignore that intuition and do something else. You can always ignore that nudge and, and go the other way. But it uh, is effective in, in the nudging. And, of course, there are, you know, you get nudges from, from both sides. This, this uh, epic struggle of, you know, of the evolved and, or let's say the low entropy and the high entropy, you know, the good, good and evil, the evolved and the less evolved, you know, that's, that's kind of a core thing that's going on even at that level in, you know, outside of our virtual reality. That's, that kind of struggle is still happening. There's still the, the negative side versus the positive side. And it's not so much that it, you know, that a negative side was created because you have to have this competition. You have to have this uh, um, tension between the two for creativity to come about. That's not it at all. It's just the negative side created itself from poor decisions, from, from de-evolving. And now, of course, the negative side enjoys chaos. <laughs> it enjoys, you know, difficulties. It, it uh, enjoys getting in the way and making things happen badly and so on. So that's where the struggle comes, comes from because negativity revels in negativity, in chaos, in disorder. So the struggle comes from the fact that that just exists. It exists comes from the fact that there's free will. And both sides of that issue tend to use nudges tend to uh, uh, put uh, things, put ideas in people's, um, you know, in, in, oh, I shouldn't say put them in their mind, but, you know, in their uh, intuition, kind of add ideas to their intuition and those nudges. So you can get nudged from a positive side or a negative side. And if you're one of these people that, that has, you know, hold of one of the major levels you know, uh, levers, I should say, in our in our culture or on our planet, then you're probably getting nudges from both sides, and uh, that's just something you have to deal with, and it makes it difficult because you can get these these nudges both ways, and it requires a lot of strength of character to uh, you know forge your own path through that and make good decisions. So it's not always easy being one of those people with their hands on the levers, you know, that move things in a big way in our in our world. So anyway, yes, it does happen. I, I have been privy to some of the, you know, the, the, the plots and the things going on and the, the efforts and what the, you know, what this side's trying to do and what that side's trying to do and the tactics they use to, to do that. But mostly, as far as we're concerned here on this reality, 
it all is part of a natural process. It's all things that are possible in any case. Just the probabilities are nudged, and the people and their choices are nudged. But it still comes out of our own free choice. And sometimes when it gets, you know, in a, in a balance where it could go either way, then there's a whole lot of nudging going on. And then when it's not at that kind of precarious balance, there's very little nudging going on. It's just kind of left alone. So it depends on where we are in our events and, and uh, you know, the choices that are being made, the significance of those choices to the long term, you know, to the decades from now. But it is a, you know, there's, there's politics all over, and including in that, in that management hierarchy that's not real deep. It's a very flat management, but there's intrigue and politics going on there as well because that's just the nature of it when you have, you know, the kind of the, the de-evolved and the evolving, the de-evolving and the evolving that are uh, kind of both struggling for dominance in the game. Now, why would they be struggling for dominance? Well, the, 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 the good guys, the, the rats, you know, I say in my book, the rats and the anti-rats, you know, the good guys, you know, want the whole system to evolve and to succeed. And the anti-rats are the bad guys. They just like to make messes. You know, they like to create entropy. It kind of justifies who and what they are. You know, they uh, would just as soon drag it, drag it all down rather than not, because that's just what they are, how they, how they think, the way they see existence. So they don't like the idea of decreasing entropy. Too much work. It's easier, so much easier to destroy than it is to build. It's so much easier to tear something apart than it is to construct it or to create it or to think of it. It's, a, it's very attractive in that sense. And you can... You can appear to be very powerful by being very destructive. Well, because you can create a lot of change. But the change you're creating is all in the negative direction. It's creating chaos. It's creating, uh, you know, high entropy. But when you're negative, that's the only kind of changes you can make. That's what you do. You can make changes. You can have power by being destructive. So that's just the nature of the way it is and the way the ego and the fear you know, works in consciousness and love, how all those things work and the way they come out. So it is an interesting thing. Yes, it's not just, you know, a bunch of benevolent angels sitting on clouds playing harps, you know, and, uh, you know, all uh, love and peace in the, in the larger consciousness system. There's other parts of it that are destructive and quite, quite negative. And that's part of our, that's the way it is in our reality. You know, in our reality, we have lots of people who are full of peace and love and, and caring, and, and some of those are big movers, people that have large levers in the world, like Martin Luther King and, and uh, Gandhi and you know, others who have made major changes in the world and major changes in people's thinking. And then there's some on the other side that have uh, done the same. Fortunately, on the good side, it tends to be more enduring. On the negative side, it tends to be short-term. But on the negative side, it's so easy to destroy and so hard to create and move toward you know, the positive side. That takes effort. You have to want to do that. You don't have to put much effort to be destructive.
yes, all that goes on, and uh, I've been a part of it for probably 35 years. And part of it, part of my, you know, I tell people, they, you know, that, uh, you know, I have, I have several jobs. One's my day job here on, you know, in, in this virtual reality, and there I'm a physicist. And, well, I was. I'm retired from that job now. The other was my job here writing, uh, you know, my big toe, trying to get these ideas out where I could share them with other people to, to uh, help them see a, a better way of, of existing that finds happiness and peace. But my real job, which I'd say was my main job, is in non-physical reality. And it's, it's involved in these various kinds of things we're just talking about. That's really the main job. So my you know, other duties as assigned is to be here and you know, write these books and spread ideas and be a physicist. So a lot of my time is spent in the non-physical working my, my main job. And other other times are spent here, you know, doing doing uh, my jobs here in this reality. And no, I don't talk about it at all because it's there's no point, no point talking about things that other people don't have experience enough to put it in a context and make sense out of it. So I just never go into it. I just let it be. I've said this much before, so I'll say that much again, and that's uh, I guess about as much as I'll say about it. All right, Tom, we'll, we'll move on from that, but we will kind of stay on the same subject and we'll see where this one goes. Um, it's the question from the forum user about personalities that you, you do generally encounter in MPMR, um, in, in the non-physical. Um, they, they ask, uh, do persons that uh, you or people meet in MPMR actually have personalities? Um, you know, you've mentioned meeting the big cheese and thinking back on early consciousness explorations. Um, you know, you probably mentioned in the past that you and other people here, maybe maybe Dennis, um, you know, our good friend Dennis Menerick, have met together with uh, non-physical personalities at the same time. Have you had that kind of experience? Um, would that be paranormal telepathic communication between us? What what is what was that? How would we describe that? What, what what's going on there? <laughs> Sounds like you had a mashup of a bunch of questions there all together. Right. Um, the uh, the first ones is do do these entities really have personalities? Well, of course they have personalities. You know, they're an individuated unit of consciousness, and as such, they have a unique experience. You know, all of us have a different experience base. We've all experienced different things in different ways. So every consciousness is unique. And out of that uniqueness comes a unique personality, a unique attitude, a unique set of ideas, a unique set of intents. So everyone's different, and we all have personality. So, yes, all entities, all conscious entities have um, personality. And where you have major differences, like in, say, the human population, you have a lot of variation in attitudes and, and feelings and the way they see things, reality, beliefs, you know, the variation and diversity is immense. If you have groups like uh, chimpanzees, it's probably not quite as much, you know, differences there. And if you have something at a, at a lower level yet, like bumblebees, you'd probably find that most bumblebees have a very similar attitude about, you know, reality and the choices that they make. And there's not a huge amount of variation, but there is some. They're all different in their, by their unique experiences. It's just that the more 
capacity you have to have a larger uh, decision space, then the more differences you're going to get out of that entity. So the bigger the decision space the entity has, the wider their breadth of choices, the more differences you're going to evolve to, you know, over uh, that kind of a species. So that's the one thing. Everybody does have personality, and the personalities are all unique. And at the end, you were saying, how do you communicate? And yes, all the communications in the non-physical are telepathic. It, um, you know, it's different than, than us using words. You know, this is a very linear thing. Uh, it's, it's more telepathic communication is by paragraph at a time, if you will, or page at a time. You get whole ideas, and within those ideas, there's, there's, uh, there's, there can be detail. But the detail kind of works out in your own mind. And, you know, Bob Monroe had a, had a name for that. He called it a rote, I think. Where he got that name, I don't know. But R-O-T-E is what he called it. And that was just a big bunch of ideas that come in paragraphs and, and pages at a time. Thoughts, attitudes, feelings. And it's, it's not linear. It's just a, a knowing. And then as you kind of meditate on that and let that unwind in your mind, more details will come up. And a lot of that is, is your own. You're putting detail to general ideas. And that detail then not only is what you got from this other person, but it's also what you're adding to it in your interpretation of that. So it's a mix of you and whomever gave you that, that information. So right. con conversations in the larger reality are not so detailed. You know, people don't discuss, you know, the color of the wallpaper and, uh, you know, things like that there. All of that detail is just kind of lost. It's all big ideas and concepts and feelings. Okay. Okay, so we've established that there are personalities, and um, obviously the next bit of this is that uh, the larger consciousness system is the generator of these personalities. Uh, we talked about uh, Ohm, the absolute unbound manifold, as being self-conscious and imperfect. So does that itself have a personality? Well, Sure. It's consciousness. It's an individuated unit of consciousness, just like we are. It just has a whole lot deeper, broader experience, and uh, which means it has a different personality than we do. So our personality is, again, it's attached to our decision space. It has a very broad decision space compared to us. If and when, I shouldn't say if, I should just say when, we... Uh, end up with conscious computers, they will also have personalities, but their personality will be very different than ours because their decision space is different than ours. The decisions that they will make will be different sorts of decisions than the kind of decisions that we make. And then if eventually we evolve those machines to make decisions that are similar to ours, then their personalities will end up being more similar to ours. So if their decision space is similar, their personalities will be similar. But again, everyone will be unique because everyone will have its own history, its own experience base. All right. All right. Thanks, Tom. Um, I know Ingeborg has um, – she, she has a question, but she also wanted to make a comment on one of your, your previous statements. So I'm going to turn the floor over to, to Ingeborg. Yes. Uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I wanted uh, to make uh, a comment on the bad guys you expanded on uh, five minutes ago or so. Mm -hmm. um, as far as, as I uh, experienced, not always, but sometimes, 
So if there is a bad guy in, in a certain surrounding uh, and he really behaves bad, uh, this is a very, very good um, uh, opportunity for the surrounding of the bad guy <laughs> to evolve and to uh, to heal uh, something uh, or to heal themselves or to evolve themselves. So this is uh, why I wouldn't say that the bad guys are always only destructive. It, it, it's, it's the opposite. And, and you, of course, you're, maybe you know the famous quote of Goethe's Faust, the Mephistopheles. I don't want to say it in, in German now, but uh, uh, and he says he stresses exactly on that point. Yes, of course that's that's true. You know the the, the bad guys, quote unquote, uh, they offer us many things. One, they offer us bad examples. You know, you can look at that and say, "Well, oh, I don't want to be like that." You know, because those kinds of people who are very negative, if you think of people you know in this reality who are very negative, you think of people who are miserable, they're very unhappy. You know, and you can look at uh, those kinds of people who uh, just, they use other people. It's all about them and their very abilities. They, they are unhappy people. And it doesn't matter how much money they have or how much power they have, they're still very unhappy people. So they serve as bad examples. We can look at them and say, well, I don't want to go there. They also, they also create a lot of choices for people. When something, uh, you know, when some kind of terrible thing happens, often that'll bring out a lot of good in a lot of other people who step up to help or to be part of the solution or whatever. So it creates a lot of choices. Anytime you stir the pot and you create change, well, change is opportunity. Opportunity for growing, making good choices, for, for caring, and opportunity for making bad choices. So by, you know, by their being there, it's not just that it's all negative. No, you know, just that negativity can be a positive influence on other people. We can learn from their mistakes, so to speak, and the, the mess they make is something that allows us to be very positive to help heal or to clean up, or even to try to help heal them, give them love, give them caring as well. The negative people uh, can, can change. It's not like they're all lost, that these are all lost souls, they'll always be evil, you know, nasty people. The idea is that they can turn around, they can change, they can grow, they can see another side, and that happens all the time. Negative things do realize that, that where they're going is really non-profitable and they do turn around and head the other direction. So, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not that it's a lost cause and these are all beings to write off. It's not that way at all. They do contribute in their own way, but they create a lot of entropy, you know, in the, in the process. Um, listen, Tim has a question about uh, reacting to the death of loved ones. I'm going to turn it over to him um, for his question. Okay, thank you. My question is, from a My Big Toe perspective, death is no big deal, like you say. For most people, especially if their young children die, it is a big deal and hard to handle. What would be an appropriate reaction to the death of closely related people in the sense of My Big Toe? Is to mourn adequate and what is your reaction to the death of loved ones? Or is mourning something a highly evolved consciousness outgrows? 
Well, you know, some of all of that. Um, you know, death is a local phenomena, right? It's something that's, that happens in our virtual reality. It's not something that is, is permanent. It's not something that is uh, um, even fundamental. It's just something in our virtual reality. So when that individual dies, it's just that avatar that's dying. The consciousness goes on. So that's one thing. And as you say, you know, that, it's, that death then is not a really big deal. It's not that you're, uh, you know, that person is gone in the sense of consciousness, but it is gone in the sense of avatar and your interactions with that avatar. So when people die, particularly people very close to you and, and uh, people that um, you care about a lot and people that are dependent on you or people you are dependent on, it changes your life. Life is different after they're gone because interaction with them was a very big part of your life, particularly with children. You know, your children are a very, very big part of your life. And to have one die is a very traumatic experience. It changes your life. You know, and the same with other close family members. So there's a couple of things that one should learn from that. And one is that mourning is fine, but it, of course, has to be limited by reason. Some people don't know when to quit. And, you know, a decade later, they're still mourning. They still haven't gotten over it and gone on with their life. That's not helpful. But to remember those that have left us, that are close to us, to kind of cherish that memory, to uh, remember the, the connections, that's all very good. You know, memory is, is good. To wallow in your, your misery, to feel um, sorry for yourself because now you have to go on, uh, you know, without them. And sometimes even people blame the person that dies, you know, for leaving them, you know, sort of thing. Uh, because they feel upset and uh, that's part of the way they deal with things is blame. So all of that is dysfunctional. So you need to deal with it in a way that gives it respect, values what you had, and then move on with your life to make other choices, make better choices, perhaps, to uh, go over those connections and learn maybe things that you should have learned from that person, but uh, you never really did. So it's a, you know, death is... You know, it, it happens here. You know, it's going to happen to all of us, right? All of our loved ones are going to die. You know, some of them may be after us and some of them before us, but death is part of this process. It's a natural thing that we shouldn't fear. And as it happens, that individual moves on. And if it's somebody you care a lot about, keep caring about them. You can keep those memories in your mind, but don't let them control you. Don't let them make you feel sorry for yourself. Don't turn it into something negative. Turn it into something positive to where you rejoice in the time you had with them and in the connection that you had and in what you learned from them. That's, you know, I think as much, you know, as you can, as you can do about it. It's sad when our life changes when we don't want it to, but that's the way life is. All of those big changes in our life are big opportunities to grow up, to deal with things um, 
with love and care as opposed to with fear and of course self-pity and that kind of thing so it's a it's a challenge at that point to overcome it you shouldn't no one should get in this idea well you know i know that it's just a virtual reality so you know that death okay i accept it it's gone forget about it <laughs> that's not what i'm that's not what i'm saying i'm saying that it is a valuable connection you've had make the most of it but don't let it take you into negative spaces because of the change right you know, Tom, I wanted to take this chance to mention Mike and April at Path 11 Productions. Obviously, their Path trilogy deals with these subjects very closely. And, and by the time that uh, people watch this, the third part of the trilogy, Path Evolution, should probably be released. Uh, we've seen it. It is absolutely fantastic. Certainly the best of the three. And I just wanted to let people know that they can find more details of it by visiting thepathseries.com. Congratulations to Mike and April on an absolutely wonderful uh, trilogy of documentaries. Okay, moving on, uh, we have a question from Turbo on choosing a particular PMR. Uh, Tom, why did I, you, and everyone else here choose this PMR? I've heard you say in one of your YouTube videos that when we die, we are then rendered the transition reality where we do the live review and then choose another incarnation and born again into this PMR. But we usually choose this PMR because it's the PMR we're used to. But in our very first ever incarnation, were we just given a PMR by management and born into it without out knowing? Or did we choose our PMR kind of like reading through reviews of different schools or colleges and then actually making a choice? Good question. Okay. Well, it happens both ways. You know, this, you've probably also heard me say that people who are at the very beginning of their, of their uh, evolution tend to not make a lot of, of – um, plans and not go through a lot of analysis before they jump into another experience packet because all they need is experience and so it's the you know, their avatar dies and they just jump back in any avatar will do they're just trying to gain experience eventually you get to a point where you realize there's certain kinds of experience that will be more important to your learning than others and now you start planning and now you want specific kinds of experience because that's where your weakness is and that's where you need to grow well it's the same way in choosing this reality this virtual reality for the first time it depends on the individual and where they find a good match yes it's very much like you know, you know looking up all the colleges and universities and picking one you know that suits what you want to do and what your career wants to be in and kind of the level you are you don't want to pick one that you know, it's too hard or too easy or too far away or too expensive. You pick the one that suits. And that's sort of, that's like this too. So consciousness all comes in different levels of evolution, been working on it in different ways, all different sorts of personalities. And in the very beginning level, you just pick one. And if you don't know how to pick one, maybe you'll get some counseling. But if you don't know anything about it at all, you'll just get assigned one. Uh, you'll get, uh, you know, you'll just end up in one. And then as you evolve, you get more picky. And there's certain things you'd like to learn and ways you'd like to learn it. And if the system realizes that you really belong in a different kind of a reality frame, that this isn't really the reality frame that is best suited to you, what you need, then you'll be, you know, it'll be suggested to you that you try a different reality frame. The system wants you to succeed. The system wants you to evolve, so they want you to have those experiences 
that you're most likely to grow up with, that you're most likely to, you know, evolve the quality of your consciousness in. So if some reality frame seems like it would be better suited for you and your personality and where you are, then that's, you know, where you need to go. And it could be that, uh, you know, you, you go to some virtual reality frames. I've known some people ended up in virtual reality frames just to temporarily, just to teach them a lesson. For instance, those who feel like this frame is so awful and so bad, you know, that there's nothing but greed and negativity and fear. And, you know, this whole world of ours just really sucks. It isn't, uh, it isn't nice. It's, it's hard to grow up here because there's so much meanness and negativity and fear and evil, et cetera, et cetera. And if that gets to be a really big issue with them, the system will put them in one that is really like that. One that makes us look kind and benevolent and sweet and full of peace and light. And then back again, because generally they don't last long in those. You know, nobody lasts long in those. Uh, life expectancy is very short in those. And uh, that kind of recalibrates them to stop complaining about, you know, this, other, this reality. So it, sometimes there's a reason for people to be assigned to a different reality frame. Sometimes it's very educational to see how others, um, you know, are interacting and what you can get out of it and how you fit into it. Is it a good fit for you? Did you learn a lot there or did you not learn much there? And so on. So there is some cross going back and forth between reality frames, but for the most part, you eventually end up in a place that suits you. And you get used to it. And you know the ropes. So you keep going back there. So that's, that's kind of why we uh, get habituated to a given reality frame, just because it's, it suits us and we're used to it. We know the rules. We know how to interact. We kind of get the you know, get what's going on there and the level at which you have to interact. So that's, that's pretty much how it works. It, it is a choice in the beginning or an assignment. Either way, it doesn't matter early on. Whether you get assigned or choose it, it's irrelevant because you really don't know enough to make a choice. But you start somewhere, and then the idea is you keep going to wherever it is that you have the highest probability of learning. 